As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. I'm Paulina Lee, and this is Here at Haas, a student-run podcast connecting you to all Haasies and the faculty that change our lives. This week on Here at Haas, we are joined by Yanel Selman, full-time class of 2021, educator, entrepreneur, and founder. This week's episode of Here at Haas is brought to you in partnership with two clubs at Haas, the Haas Venture Capital Club and Berkeley Entrepreneurship Association, which has partnered together to create Pitch Night, which Yanel is the most recent winner. So congrats on winning. We're excited to have you here and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Paulina. Really excited to be here. Really grateful for the support from Haas and from all the clubs. Yeah, for our startup work and for you elevating our story. Love it. We can't wait to hear about your company, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So to start off, Tell us about yourself and how you got to Haas. Yeah, so I, my name's Yanel. I am originally from Miami. Grew up in a big Cuban family down there. Love my hometown so much. It's such a particular place. I don't know if you've been to Miami, but <laughs> it's mm-hmm. definitely um, a unique city. And yeah, grew up, went to public schools and did well. Got some gold stars and ended up going to Northwestern for undergrad. And as soon as I got there, I was, I realized that I was pretty unprepared. <laughs> Despite having done well in high school, I felt like I just couldn't really keep up academically that first semester or socially. I feel like there was some big <laughs> gaps. Uh, my parents didn't go to college. So there was just so much learning that I had to do again, academically and socially. And that really made me interested in education. I ended up studying institutions at Northwestern political science, philosophy, and communication studies. And so after Northwestern, I ended up doing, I knew I wanted to do education policy. I ended up doing Teach for America. I wanted to get some school site experience and I hadn't studied education. So I ended up doing TFA and I got placed out here in the Bay Area. I was living in Oakland, teaching at a public elementary school in Richmond, which is right nearby, and had such a great experience with my kids. Uh, I was teaching second grade bilingual, and my students were so brilliant. The families were so engaged, but I just felt that the the school system I was working in was really broken. Um, so after my two years of teaching, I ended up working in education policy as a community organizer, working on political campaigns. Love that work. Ended up getting promoted, managed a team of community organizers in all across Northern California. So. San Jose, Oakland, Richmond, and Sacramento. Love that work, did it for a few years and wanted to go back home. And so that was my first foray into entrepreneurship. I was 26, quit my job, was living in San Francisco. Things were going well, but I I just really missed home and ended up raising some money to start a nonprofit in Miami centered on education and political organizing and had a great experience. But after about a year and a half of doing this work that I loved so much, started to experience deep burnout to the point that I was, you know, really dropping balls left and right. I was having sort of like all of the physiological symptoms of burnout and it was completely unsustainable. I worked with my coaches and my board members and my funders, everybody who was supporting the work to just figure out how to manage the burnout. Another year went by and I made some progress, but I was really just too far gone. And so that's when I started thinking about, okay, what are some ways that I could take a step back 
reflect, think a little bit more about what drives me and my purpose. And that's really what brought me to Haas. And as I'm sure, yeah, I'll get to share, that was one of the reasons why I started Cultivate to, to think about this burnout issue with a little more depth. That's great. What a great story. And you did spend a majority of your career in education. So you touched on it a little bit, but would love for you to share a little bit more, you know, why education? What interests you about it? Was there any defining moment that made you think, ah, this is the sector, this is the industry that I want to be in? Oh, yeah. I mean, I really thought about the sort of like, what space do I want to work in? For so many years, I think when I was younger, I always wanted to be a journalist. And that really came from being Cuban and visiting Cuba when I was a kid. And every few years, my family and I would go and we were allowed to go at varying frequencies based on who was the president at the time. And I just remember going. And one of the biggest things that struck me when I was there was the how it was really difficult to get access to information. And one of the ways that the government manages its citizens is by restricting access to information. And it was just so clear in education and in the media, right? And so when I was thinking about what to study and going into undergrad, I feel like I was excited (laughs) to think about some of these big questions in a place like Northwestern is really supportive of that. I started just thinking about the media, yes, but education for me, and it just given my experience of feeling like the bar was just so much higher at Northwestern compared to the community that I had come from, I felt I want to dive a little bit deeper into this issue. I feel like education really forms our worldview and helps us understand what is true and helps us, you know, it's it's such a defining experience, right? One of my favorite things about working in education is that everybody has a story, right? Relating to education, whether it's their own story, their parents' story. And so it's just such a unifier in so many ways if you're able to access it. And yeah, so teaching really, you know, I knew I didn't want to do it forever, but it was such an incredible experience and privilege to get to spend my days with 30 brilliant seven and eight-year-olds. So yeah, I learned a ton. It was it was amazing. If you think about that teaching experience with TFA, do any memories come to mind or any big call it life ahas that surprised you when you were teaching the kids over in Richmond? Yeah, I think one of the moments that really stood out to me, we at our school sort of had a very strict curriculum and it was super test prep oriented. And you know, there's reasons for that, but I I did find it pretty restrictive. And then after standardized tests were over, we were allowed to kind of do our own unit And I remember thinking like, you know, I had done a a little bit of community organizing in, in college at Northwestern. And I was like, what's a way that I can just really highlight some of the amazing assets and resources that exist in Richmond, which like we don't always hear that or think about that. And so I ended up designing this unit on, which was based in asset-based community development, which is a type of community organizing. And yeah, and we basically just created like a literal map of Richmond and started to highlight some of the amazing organizations that were doing great work and then had those organizations come in to our classroom. And the kids were just so engaged asking questions and like meeting real people that were doing real work in their communities and lived across the street from them. Um, And I just found it to be such a fun way to get to know people in that city and to get to be a real community member and, and as a way to build community, both in my classroom, but in a larger context as well. I love how schools can be that bridge between just connecting the schools, which are just such a big part of the community, but 
often not as integrated as you think, right? The fact that kids growing up too, you never know like what your neighbor does or what a job is or who runs things. So I can see why everyone just got excited both ways. So community members getting to connect with the younger generation and then the younger generation getting to see like, ah, this is what these people do. These are the businesses we see every day. It's a really cool idea. Yeah. And it was really, it was, I think it was just so special because my classroom specifically was designed for students who were not born in the U.S. So it was like a specific type of, it was called Transitional Bilingual Education, TBE. And almost all, if not all of my students were born somewhere else and their families immigrated to the U.S. And so a big challenge that they had was navigating the school system, right? It was super overwhelming. Our school district had 30,000 students and navigating what it means to be a student in the U.S. and what quality looks like and what great teaching is like and where are there classes for different things that you need or free legal resources, right? Like all of that was, I think, a pretty big black box. And it was so fun to get to do this work where just shedding light on kind of like what was already happening and connecting dots and helping folks find the information that they need in a way that was structured and equitable across you know, everyone in the class. Yeah, really impacting the lives of their families and the students, which is great. So after TFA, you joined California Charter Schools Association. What made you want to start there after coming out of teaching? Yeah, I was really interested in staying in Richmond and doing work in Richmond. I had worked at a district school and our school was, district was just really failing at the time. The school board president at the time, Charles Ramsey, was being investigated by the FBI and SEC for bond corruption. And it was just a really dark time in that school district. And school board elections were coming up. And I remembered I wanted to sort of like really dive deep. And I heard about this position with CCSA where basically you'd get to work with families and get them involved in the local school board election with the sort of idea charter schools are super controversial. I had no experience with charter schools at the time, but basically thinking through like parents are going to want school choice. And overwhelmingly, when I talked to the families that I taught, they said the same thing. They wanted options, right? Like wealthy parents have options. And so... I thought it was going to be just a really cool opportunity to learn and to get to do education policy and politics at a grassroots level that was going to have sort of grass tops impact. And so the role, even though I wasn't sure, I think at that time about the policy, I knew that my school district was failing. I knew that the charter schools were doing great work in that community and I wanted to be a part of it. So I took that job and had such an incredible time. Yeah, I, it was one of the most impactful experiences I've ever you know, had the privilege to be a part of. It's really cool that you got to, to your point, like start at the grassroots level, understand where the system was broken and see it on an everyday basis and how it was really impacting the people within that system and then ladder up and say, okay, I can have impact because I know how these decisions are being made, how they're actually coming to life. Cause so often there is that big disconnect. And then you said afterwards you were getting a little homesick. So I'm just curious, like what did you miss most about Miami other than the fact that it's like sunny in the summer and not sunny in the Bay area in the summer. <laughs> and what was like the first thing you did when you got back home? Oh, yeah, I miss Miami a ton. I just have such a big family and we're pretty close. I have a young sister and I just love her so much. And I've always been really excited to support in her schooling. So I had gone through the public school systems. My brother had as well. And so the original decision was really based on that. I was doing a ton of school tours in Miami. I was also, again, managing this team in Northern California, realizing that this work was really helpful and felt like there was just a big gap. And, and I sort of felt 
a bit uniquely just qualified to go back home and, and do some of that same work. And so, yeah, I would say missing my family was 100% the number one thing. And then, yeah, what was the first thing that I did when I got home? I probably had Cuban food. I, I mean, no disrespect to any of the Cuban restaurants, but it's not like Miami. Not you know, it's not like <laughs> there's no real Cuban bakeries out here. So I probably had like a pastelito de guayaba y queso and a croqueta and... I might have even had that at the airport. I feel like I would have been so excited. <laughs> <laughs> Upon landing. Yes. <laughs> I love it. So you got home, you came with all this great experience and you started your first company, um, your first foundation. So PS305. So would love to know more about that organization behind the name and what you learned. Yes. It was uh, such an amazing experience. I had spent about a year sort of it, while I was living in San Francisco, spending my Sundays at a coffee shop, sort of just googling business plan templates and coming up with this idea and then just you know thinking through like what would the budget be what would the program look like how would i recruit parents and doing some meetings with folks in the community in miami like with teachers i knew and i would reach out cold on linkedin to folks and got just such positive feedback from folks locally from some of the funders that were funding our work out here got into a couple fellowships. I did Camelback Ventures and I did a, a program with New Profit, which is a, a big philanthropy based in Boston. And just ultimately decided that there was enough sort of momentum for me to work full time on it. So I ended up, like I said, I quit my job when I, I think it was 26 when I quit and then moved back home and started building this organization from the ground up. And really what our mission was to empower families, help unleash their the power that they innately have to get involved in the school system. And even to this day, the school system in Miami is, you know, not responsive <laughs> to families. The approach to, to dealing with parents and, and families is very much like just try to minimize noise. And that was just so different from what I was seeing in every other city in DC and Denver and LA and Oakland. And so I just really wanted to bring the parent voice to the political conversation. And I felt there was a huge need for that. So we did trainings. We did the Parent Power Accelerator was our sort of like first training module that we did. We recruited families from all across Miami, from Little Havana, Little Haiti, Liberty City, Homestead. And we did eight trainings. And the trainings were sort of first like overview of the school system and how everything is structured. What is a high quality school and how do you know? Miami has a ton of different school choice options. So like magnet schools, charter schools, private schools, so many different choices. And so how do you navigate that? What are all the different types of schools and what do they mean? And we did an APAR training and then ended with kind of an action step, which was what is one problem that you see and how can we work together to solve it? And parents really right away came to this question of schools are not supporting the growth of our kids in like an emotional way. And it was interesting that parents felt that intuitively and kind of came to that and teachers the same thing. And we saw across the country that there was this big new kind of movement for social and emotional learning. And Miami-Dade, even though it had been the fourth biggest district in the country, didn't have an SEL program. And so that was our first campaign was how do we bring social and emotional learning to the school system? And yeah, and it was such an exciting ride. I got to meet with school board members and superintendents, and that was really all parent-led. That's basically what the work looked like on a day-to-day -day level. What do you, I'm sure going in, you knew there was a big uphill battle, multiple uphill battles going your way, working through policies and school systems and local governments. What was most surprising to you? Like, what did you not expect to be hard? And what did you not expect to be easy? 
I would, yeah. <laughs> I was really surprised by how entrenched the, this is going to be like a little esoteric, but just how entrenched the power structures were. Like at the time that I moved there, which was in, you know, early 2017, the superintendent just had so much power and truly nothing could get done without him. And every single school board member was just kind of going along with it, even though they were his boss. And I was just so surprised by how little people pushed back and tested that. I was very surprised because, again, in all the other communities that I had seen doing this, and I was working in coalition with similar orgs across the country, I just saw people demanding more and like wanting change and, you know, expecting a voice at the table. And that just wasn't happening. Like there was just no norm around people going to school board meetings, for example, and just saying what was going on at their school. And so, for example, when we had our first ever action where we were going to have three parents go to the school board meeting and speak, I remember the school district called them and said, hey, we want to know what you're going to come speak about. If you have a problem, we'd love to resolve it for you between now, you know, it was like a Monday, like between now and Wednesday when the school board meeting is. And it was just crazy to me that they would try to discourage people from getting involved and from speaking and having their voice be heard. I felt that was really shocking and honestly made me angry. So it was ultimately motivating, I think. And families ultimately did go and and say their piece. And it was hard to kind of stand up to the structure that everybody was going along with. But ultimately, I felt like it was just such important work. Yeah, for sure. And then I guess this is a question and something I think about a lot when I think about when I'm talking with, you know, entrepreneurs. I think when people step back, they think entrepreneurship is a very sexy thing to do, right? You're your own boss, you define your own hours, total autonomy. But what they don't realize is it's 24-7, right? You're it, you're the company. So you talked about this a little bit in your opening, right? You experienced deep burnout and it's a real physiological, physical thing that humans, I think a lot of people probably are either in or seeing from themselves as we come out hopefully out of this pandemic, but would love for you to talk a little bit about your experience and what that was like and, and how it came about. Yeah, I had burnt out as a, you know, as a teacher and working in politics, but the founder burnout was really next level. And I think it was because it was my hometown and my community. And because, you know, I had a sister that was like just going into kindergarten <laughs> and because I had just done this work in other places and I knew what was possible. I really didn't have a lot of patience when I started out. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't, right? Like they moving really fast and breaking things is sort of like the the norm or what we talk about with entrepreneurship. And it was just such a, it was not a fast paced, like the impact is not immediate, right? Like you do all this work every single day. You're having tons of meetings. I remember I had over 400 meetings in my first year. Like, And I just was shocked by how long it took when you'd work and you'd work and you'd work. And as soon as you felt like you were going to hang your hat on something that was going to be, you know, you were going to meet a goal, then something else would like fall apart. <laughs> and it was in these fellowships with other entrepreneurs and just hearing the same thing over and over again. And so I do think in those first few years, it just really is about the persistence and balancing that with the 
self-awareness to understand when you are working unsustainably, right? And so for me, you know, I was just going hard, going to every single event, having all of these meetings, doing all my own research and policy reviews. I didn't really have any national support at that time. I had it some later, (laughs) which helped, but you know, I was going really hard. And then I just remember this, I was starting to like lose sleep and I was starting to like miss workouts and I was starting to, you know, my didn't have as much time for nutrition. I was just starting every single aspect of my life was taking a back seat to the work. And I just remember one day I was like, I had been at an event all night the night before and I got home super late and I was exhausted and I just fell asleep. And I wake up the next day to a phone call at 7 a.m. And it's one of our school partners. It's a principal from a local school. And I was supposed to be there at seven to give a training. And he was like, hey, where are you? I have 30 parents here in the room waiting for you. And I was like, oh my God, I am so sorry. I just forgot. <laughs> and wow, there if I care so much about this work and this work is so important to me, how do I let my personal neglect get in the way of it, right? I need to sleep. And so if I'm going to show up as my best, and I didn't really respect that. And that was my big aha moment that I was like, okay, I structurally need to change something because big important balls are falling through the cracks and that's just not acceptable. And it's not acceptable to the families that we were serving to those 30 families that were there in the room that day. It was just so unacceptable. And so that was really what forced me truly to take a closer look at how I was working and what are the ways that you can make entrepreneurship more sustainable. And that was a a lesson I definitely learned the hard way. (laughs) Yeah. Because I feel like when you're an entrepreneur or moving through different things, whatever it is in your life, taking time for yourself feels selfish. When in reality, if you don't, to your point, you can't do these other things that you're so passionate about because you yourself are not in a position to help or to think creatively, think strategically, or even execute. And, you know, I took a class this spring, (laughs) which is Becoming Superhuman. And we talk a bit about with those two professors, the one credit course. Oh, I took that class. I love that course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So great. So hard. Lucas are amazing. They're so brilliant. Yes. Highly recommend, but they talk about burnout and it was just like so pertinent too, because it was spring 2021. We were our first almost full year into being in lockdown and shelter in place and everything. So it was really eye opening to learn about. So you also said this is your big aha moment in terms of burnout. You still kept pushing through it for another year. And then you took a step back and were like, okay, I need to figure out what I want to do next. I need to figure out drives me. What's my purpose? And then you ended up pursuing an MBA. So I'm curious to know like, what did you found drove you? What did you find or what did you decide was your purpose? And then why was the MBA the answer to that? When I started the MBA, you know, I had so many conversations with people. I'm sure everybody does. And I remember speaking to Molly Zines, who at the time was, you know, going into her second year of the MBA. And, you know, she told me something that I like never forget and like really drove my MBA experience. She said, you are in a place where you just have access to so many resources. If you want to learn about investment banking, all of a sudden go sit in on a a class or a workshop or join a club. If you want to be a venture capitalist, like you have access to that. If you want to do a startup, like host a brown bag lunch and, and, and do it and get feedback, right. And make a deck. And it's like truly anything, just push yourself out of your comfort zone. I think, you know, sometimes you get into these MBA programs and whatever graduate program, and, and you just feel a little bit of imposter syndrome. And I know as 
a Latina, I always, <laughs> always have a little bit of that. And you, but it's just such a unique time. And instead of leaning into my strengths, like how can you lean into areas for growth and places that I was just curious about. You know, I didn't do everything. I didn't do consulting. I didn't do finance, but I did want to better understand the private sector, right? I had worked for the my entire career for seven years in the public sector and in the nonprofit sector. I saw really big challenges in those sectors relating to two main things. One is just the sustainability of those sectors and the way that fundraising happens and does rely ultimately on private sector donors. And then having impact at scale. I feel like when you're in the nonprofit sector, it's mostly really deep community work, or that had been my experience. And it's harder to have like legitimate impact at scale. And I felt that the private sector was great for both of those things. And I was still interested in sort of like innovation. And to me, that meant entrepreneurship and tech. So coming in, I said, you know what, I'm going to go deep on entrepreneurship because it's such a strength of Haas and it's such a strength of the Bay Area. And I'm going to go hard in on tech because I do think to sort of my original curiosity about how do we understand the world and how do we know what truth is? Tech has, you know, obviously such a big part of that today. And yeah, those are my sort of two big focus areas. And just getting to meet such brilliant people and professors and getting to do such amazing programming really kind of just continued to fuel my fire for, for both of those areas, which I, I feel like I got to fully explore during my MBA. Was there anything that surprised you the most about Haas when you got onto campus and started exploring? I was really surprised by people's willingness to get involved and get their hands dirty with startup work. My co-founder is one of my classmates who's amazing. I We had so many different sort of folks come in for projects to do sort of market research and to help us get, you know, from zero to one. Even if they had no startup interests, they were just, everybody was like down to get their hands dirty. Our first angel investor was involved in the Berkeley Network. And, you know, we did a ton of programs. We did Step, we did the Sky Deck. I just feel like there's, it's entrepreneurship. And that, it was just, it's something that I always thought was really hard to teach and was really hard to formalize. And I was really excited by how Haas was able to really create a scope and sequence for that. That's true. It's such a big ecosystem. It's overwhelming when you first get a peek around the corner of what Haas has to offer for entrepreneurship. But then once you start digging in, you realize there's actually so many frameworks and so many interconnected support systems between all of the different resources that if you, to your point, get your hands dirty and lean in, you can definitely be set up for success. Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of my most formative groups at Haas has been Cohort X, which is like our sort of self student run informal entrepreneurs group. And it's just, you know, all students that are sharing informal advice. And one of the reasons that we started it was really because we were like, wow, how do we navigate all of these amazing resources? Yeah. Let's talk to other people who are maybe one step ahead of us. And even today, you know, it's been years and it's just still a daily conversation with that crew of, of entrepreneurs. And yeah, it definitely can be overwhelming, but it's just so nice to have everything that you need all in one place. Totally. And we've been alluding to it the entire time we've been chatting, but let's dig into your current company. So it's called Cultivate. What's your origin story? What, what was your back of the napkin scribbles that brought it together <laughs> with your co-founder? And what are you guys hoping to accomplish? The reason that I left my last startup was just because I, I had felt such extreme burnout that I felt like I was past the point where I was going to be able to recover and do that work. And so when I got to Haas, that question was top of mind for me. I was 
just thinking about all the roles I'd had, thinking about all the smart people that and hardworking people that I had worked with and how burnout just felt inevitable at some point. Like if you're working hard, you're just going to crash and burn after, you know, three years. <laughs> and I just was curious about that. And, you know, I think I thought about burnout as a psychological question, but I was so curious. I just started to dig into the research and started to, to, to put a team together around the problem. I'm one of those like entrepreneurs that believes you should fall in love with the problem, not your solution. Cause you know, it'll inevitably change. And we did step my first fall and started to do customer interviews. You know, I did an independent study at Haas around burnout. And as soon as I started digging into the research, I realized that there was this big paradigm shift happening in, in the burnout thinking, right? Burnout was defined in the 1970s. It's a relatively new field. And I think because such, so many of the sort of outcomes are psychological, that's really where the study, the thinking originated. And there's this big paradigm shift happening. We're realizing that burnout traditionally has been thought of as sort of like a medical problem. It's sort of the burden has been on the individual as a patient to sort of get better and self-care. And there's now a shift in thinking about burnout as a managerial problem and a team culture problem. And, you know, acknowledging that burnout, you know, the symptoms we see it in individuals, but it happens at a company level. It happens at a team level. And so what are the managerial solutions to burnout? If you're a leader, how can you prevent burnout, right? And not accept it as inevitable and not accept that like everyone's going to come in, work really hard for three years until they absolutely can't anymore, lose all hope, and then see the only solution is going to another job, which starts the cycle all over again. And the sort of three symptoms of burnout are first exhaustion, right? Like physical exhaustion. Second is cynicism. And then third is like hopelessness, lack of agency in what you think you can change. And so that's what you see over those three years, right? You first see that people are tired and they start taking breaks and they start meditating and doing whatever wellness they they identify with. And then second, they start getting cynical and the work starts to suffer. And then by the time you get to hopelessness and lack of self-efficacy, people are already ready to be poached. They're already looking for another job. And for millennials, I think that's it's the story of so many of us. And it's a huge business problem, right? Gallup estimated in 2018 that it costs U.S. businesses $450 billion. So it's a big problem. And we don't really have a go-to solution. So that's really where Cultivate came out of. It came out of that research, those customer interviews, and, and that understanding that there is a managerial solution. Was there a point during your customer interviews where you were like, ah, we do have a real problem that needs solving what we call like a hair on fire problem, whether it was a phrase that you just kept hearing from your interviews, your customer research, what really made it like we have a problem that we can potentially go after and solve? Yeah, I mean, we had so many, especially towards the end, I would say of this first initial year and a half. COVID phase, what we were seeing over and over and over again when we were talking to managers and HR business partners was that there was this crazy attrition. And so one, I won't name the company, <laughs> but they said that they had 30% turnover. And this is a big company with over a thousand employees and they were seeing a 30% turnover and just the lowest engagement scores of all time. And people were just really desperate. They were like, you know, we've done this, we've done that, we've given remote work, but no one understood the sort of the real mechanisms behind what causes burnout. Like in addressing burnout, you can either address work demands and help people restructure their work. You can change the way 
time is structured and prioritization, you can change rewards, right? you can, you know, give people some purpose and alignment and values. Like there's certain areas of work it's called that you can adjust or you can help people on the work recovery side. And that's a lot of what we think about when we say wellness. And But like people who are dealing with this have no sense of what the research <laughs> shows is effective. And so in those initial conversations, what we had was just deep frustration and almost desperation. And then just like eyes lighting up whenever we would even say anything about the research. People were like, can you dive into that? Can you send me a slide? And that was really when we first said, okay, I think there's the real market here. There's a real problem. There's so many businesses that are dealing with this there. How do we really solve for this? And how does Cultivate help with solving that problem? Yeah. So we, like I said, you can either address burnout on the work demand side or on the work recovery side. We really believe that at the sort of fundamental (laughs) level, burnout happens because there's not a lot of incentive for you to have boundaries with your work. And so people end up sort of completely consuming their lives with work. And we really believe that if there was a clear boundary between when you're working and when you're not working, <laughs> that on a daily and a weekly and a monthly and an annual basis, you're able to sort of prevent burnout. And that there are these sort of like scientific underpinnings for that, right? Like there's the resource replenishment cycle that talks about how you deplete resources as you work and you replenish resources as you rest. Sahar Yusuf from <laughs> Becoming Superhuman, the course you we were just talking about, talks about how these sort of like cognitive processing systems like need a break, like you need to process different systems. And so thinking about that, we came up with this research based concept called high quality time off. And it's sort of like, what are the things you need to do to make sure that when you're not working, reaching your maximum resource recovery, so you are coming back as ready to go as possible. And we've defined a sort of five part framework that describes high quality time off. And we've developed a product that makes high quality time off accessible, predictable, and required when it's being implemented. So what it looks like is, let's say you're an employee of a company and your company offers Cultivate as a wellness benefit. You might come to an info session with us. You're going to learn a little bit more about high quality time off, maybe like a 30 minute workshop, an hour long workshop. And from there, you would get $100, let's say, to spend on high quality time off experiences. And so... For example, surfing (laughs) counts as a high quality time off experience because it has certain sensory inputs that you get. Um, It's something that's like active versus passive. It's sort of like, you know, it fits our framework in certain ways. And and we have a ton of others, mushroom foraging, woodworking, you know, engaging with art. We have all of these experiences people can have. And on the one hand, we're getting really great data about actually what is effective. What is it that people are doing that's helping them come back feeling refreshed? Is it engaging with the outdoors? Is it in doing something you know physically active, et cetera? And at the same time, we're able to provide clear ROI to the employer and say, people who use Cultivate are X percent less likely to turn over. <laughs> and so just, I think those two pieces and the research backing that we developed at Berkeley has really just helped us build relationships with our employers and, and help move the needle on, on this super important issue. No, that's so cool. Um, So interesting too. So as you think about goals in a year from now, where do you hope to see yourself and where do you hope to see Cultivate? Oh, wow. (laughs) I would just love to be serving thousands and thousands and thousands of teams with Cultivate and really seeing a shift 
in our understanding of what counts as sustainable peak performance. I would love for us to publish books and be on Oprah and spreading the gospel about high quality time off and really getting people to understand that if you want to be a high performer, if you want to do your best at work, it's in your own best interest to take some real breaks and to spend Saturday completely offline, right? And so, yeah, just to get the word out about the way we're thinking about high quality time off and getting managers to really give permission for that. Definitely during COVID, many companies have been giving these sort of like flex days and take one PTO day extra and all of that. But so much of the problem with that is the implementation. People still feel like they're being punished if they don't work or that other people are working and that's getting them ahead. And so how do we change the culture around work? People are, it's actually seen as a good thing if you're taking your time away from work seriously. And if you're not responding, you know, at certain times and, you know, how are you communicating to your team about that? How does that build informal relationships and trust? There's all these other externalities relating to that. Yeah, I feel very fortunate because my team president has been very good about that. I think when COVID first started, everyone really struggled that fine line between quote unquote, personal life, professional life, your bedroom from your office. But I think once summer hit and people kind of had this realization of this is going to last a lot longer than we thought and no one's used their vacation because no one can go anywhere. She really started doing herself and then also encouraging others to Think about what quality time off meant, even if it was shutting down the computer and being at home with your family, but figuring out those ways to reboot. And she always talks about that every year and every quarter. She always takes time, goes off into the woods on her own without her phone, no cell service, just to have deep think and how important that is to her as a leader. And so to your point, like if you don't see that from your management, from your leadership, it's really hard to step back and think, okay, if she's doing that and if I want to get to that level or maybe a couple levels below, like what do I need to do in order to recharge, in order to stay on top of my game? Because otherwise you're just like, I'm on vacation, but my boss is going to call me anyway. So I'm going to keep checking my phone just in case. And your brain never gets to rest. It never gets the opportunity to actually recharge. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that the pandemic served as such a catalyst and accelerator really for this thinking, because we define high quality time off. And this does come directly from the research as being able to achieve physical, cognitive and emotional distance from work. And that's really hard and harder now as people are working from home where they just don't have that physical distance. And what we see is that physical distance really contributes to emotional and cognitive distance. And so much of the old structure that we used to use, you know, has pros and cons, right? People have more flexibility, more autonomy, more control over their work, which does feel like more resources and does feel empowering. But at the same time, you're sort of, it's harder to get that distance from work and to really take a step away. And so it does wear down on those same, you know, cognitive processes that need a chance to to replenish, you know? And so before we used to maybe on a Friday night, go and go to a bar and <laughs> happy hour with other hussies or talk about other things, or you used to maybe go play tennis at your you know, local park or go to a dance class. And that all just disappeared overnight. And so all of our opportunities to, to really engage with other parts of our identity just weren't there. And we saw people working an average of three hours more a day, right? Because they were using their commuting time and their you know time that they used to spend having lunch with coworkers, just sitting at their desks on a Zoom happy hour. And it just feels like more tasks and more work and less resources to do those tasks, less time, less solo attention. Many people were working with, with families at home and it was really tough. And so I think that's really why we're 
we cultivate are having this conversation is because it's very clear that there is now a role for managers and for companies to really say, okay, we need to provide <laughs> some space <laughs> for folks to to develop. Whereas before I would say so many companies, especially tech companies in the Bay Area, said the opposite. And they were like, we want you to spend all your time at work. We have built you a gym. You can <laughs> live here if you want. <laughs> you can live here if you want. And and really we don't think that's sustainable. And that's not what's best for for peak performance. We think that if you have experiences and you're able to disconnect and you have things happening outside of your work life that you're going to actually be more resilient in your work life when you face challenges. I really don't know how anyone who manages a team is going to listen to this podcast and be like, nope, burnout <laughs> isn't real. Less yeah, vacation. I would love to chat and hear how <laughs> things are going. And also just honestly, I do feel like the people who are closest to the problem are always the people who have like the best understanding of how to fix it. And so a lot of it is just connecting the dots between who's dealing with the problem, who's leading the team, and then what does the research say? And is it effective or not? And it's just about connecting those dots. So yeah, always happy to chat with any managers <laughs> uh, about this. Well, on that realm, I would love for you to share a 30 second pitch um, for Cultivate and really put it out there just so if people listen to one part of the podcast, we'll send them here and then they can go back and listen to the rest. At this stage of the pandemic, pretty much everybody is experiencing burnout. There was a study that came out that nine and 10 workers in the U.S. are experiencing at least one of the symptoms of burnout. And we really believe that burnout is preventable. We reject the idea that crashing and burning <laughs> is a part of being a high performer. So at Cultivate, we've designed a framework around what we call high quality time off. And this is based on research that we've done at Berkeley. And it's based on data that our online platform has collected about what are the best ways to make sure that when employees and folks that are on teams are not working, that they're coming back refreshed. So what it looks like is if you're at an employee at a company that offers Cultivate, you will have access to learning and development workshops on burnout and high quality time off. And you'll learn about that framework. And then you'll get $50, $100 to spend on high quality time off experiences like woodworking or surfing or engaging with art or mushroom foraging or whatever else suits you. I love that. It's so important, um, especially now with, as we're trying to figure out what work looks like in the future, whether we're at home, whether in the office, whether it's some hybrid, I love the mission that you guys have. And I, I think it's so exciting. So if you ever need a tester for your experiences, let me know too. <laughs> Always, yes. Thank you. Appreciate the support. Yeah, that's great. Well, hey, in our last couple minutes here, just wanted to learn more about you and how you've been spending your time. So you just graduated in May. How has your first summer free been? What have you been doing in your free time? if you have any as an entrepreneur founder. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like the hustle continues with Cultivate and we've been having a great time working on that this summer. And I have also just definitely taken some time to sort of practice what I preach and to really take some time off. So uh, a couple weeks ago, actually, a couple of Haas girlfriends and I went down to Santa Monica in LA and, and just had a really fun wellness week where we just every single day would book like a yoga class in the morning and a surf lesson in the afternoon. And we would cook together and we would go out and, and have an acai bowl and sort of like all of the cliche wellness activities. But yeah, it's been super fun and restorative and really great to connect with. Yeah the things that, that sort of make me feel like me. I guess on a daily or weekly basis, what are your cornerstone habits that keep you grounded and help you prevent burnout? 
Yeah. Wow. I have so many. <laughs> okay, cool. So I'll share mine. <laughs> There's a lot in there kind of structured. So just quickly, I feel health and fitness. So definitely like cooking for myself and meal prep, like nutrition, working out. I've been training for a half marathon with a, another crew of Hossies. We're going to do that in November. Sleeping. I must sleep eight hours a day. Otherwise I'm very cranky, which is um, <laughs> hard to achieve, but definitely like my, one of my biggest priorities. I've dabbled in meditation. I'm not, I'm honestly not super disciplined at it, but I do use it and access it when I need. I've done therapy here and there. And I feel like that's been helpful. And then ultimately just like social support my personal community and my professional community provide such vast resources for me to feel like myself and plug into what I care about. And then I'm really big on the kind of like micro sabbatical. I think my number one thing that I do that is, you know, I've been doing it since I was a teacher is I take Saturday fully off. Like I never work on Saturday. I will not look at a a computer. (laughs) I will, if I can help it, not look at my phone. So yeah, like a full screen free Saturday, really filling that time with something else that feels more meaningful is, is probably my number one thing, to be honest. That's such great advice. And it's really, I love that phrase to micro sabbatical where you can just be like, Hey, this is the day we're going to leave everything shut down and just go out and explore and be with community, be out in nature, be doing the things that move you and really drive you. It's so important just to reconnect. So I love that. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for having me and for all the questions. One last question before you go. So in closing, what is the advice you would have for all of our first years to take advantage of Haas or what you wish you knew going in your first semester? Yeah, I think just really do the things you're not good at already. I think it's like, if you're a quant, it's so easy to just spend all your time in sort of like quant roles. And if you're a poet, as they say, to spend all your time in soft skills and to do all the soft skills classes and to really just feel like you're shining. And I think there, you know, that there's value to that. And there's a place for that. I don't think the MBA is the place for that. I really think this is the place to go outside your comfort zone, try something new, fail a lot and fall back on this incredible community that <laughs> that we have and uh, yeah that, that would be 100% my take is like in a group project in a club in an internship and in class whatever it is just don't do the thing that you normally would do the thing that you've always like wanted to dip your toe into but haven't yet it's great advice thank you Anel, so much for joining us on the show and best of luck with cultivate if people want to learn more about the company where can they find you yeah, check us out on LinkedIn or on our website, cultivate.io, and that's spelled C U L T I V E I T dot IO. We'll also link it in our show notes for anyone who looks through those so they'll Great. be able to find that very easily. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Paulina. Thank you all and the whole team for having me and for sharing a little bit about the work that we're doing and excited and, and so grateful to be part of, of this community. Awesome. And thanks for tuning in to Here at Haas. Know a Hossie that has a story to tell? Nominate them on our website, haaspodcast.org. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to share out this podcast with your favorite bears. This episode was published with the help from one of our associate producers, Irene Liang. Until next time, I'm Paulina Lee, and this is Here at Haas.